So welcome, everyone. Nice to continue this series. I hope people are appreciating it. I have enjoyed, actually, uh, refreshing my own understanding to some of the fundamentals of Dharma. I, I never take on a topic in which I don't learn a great deal in, in just the teaching of it. <clears throat> so uh, there's a lot to learn from these topics. And tonight we're going to focus in on generosity or dana, uh, the Pali word. <clears throat> it's a beautiful term, uh, but you might ask yourself, why is dana, why is generosity uh, fundamental of dharma? Perhaps we can understand uh, why uh, not avoiding uh, what is is a fundamental of dharma or samadhi or some of the other, but what, what is it about generosity that holds a kernel of, of foundation? <clears throat> and uh, I think uh, if we're properly oriented to the dharma, we get a sense of where this, this journey is taking us uh, pretty quickly. Uh, if last uh, talk, I gave was on virtue, or the ethical conduct sila. And where I sort of uh, introduced the topic was in a kind of porousness that once we release the guardedness of our individuality, once we are more willing to participate in life as a coming and a going, as a, as a movement, as a flow, organically, which, once we are less willing or more able to be uh, less defensive in our life and we allow a true relationship to happen, you also find that you get informed by that relationship. Relationship isn't just one-sided, it's just not your giving, but it's also information that comes. And that's what mindfulness is, is developing a conduit for feedback to arise as well as a partition and a porousness where we can seep out and life can seep in. And uh, in the tidal qualities of, of life. And so uh, sila or ethical conduct or virtue uh, can be seen as the gift or gift, a gift of, of sharing, uh, an orientation to life in which we are a properly positioned not to harm. And when we're free enough or open enough for people to actually feel that, uh, they feel it as a gift. It's a gift that doesn't just stop with our own unprotectedness, our own uh, openness, but really is felt by the relationship across the partition. People sense when someone is honest. We sense when someone isn't out to betray us in some way, to do something to us. And it's, so if you get a sense of how uh, the movement of Dharma is really to create that sense of energetic movement and flow, the tidal sense of, of receiving and, and offering, uh, if you take the person out of it, which is often the easiest thing to do, if we keep putting the person back in it, 
then you think in terms of I. I'm doing this, and now I'm doing that, and now I'm receiving it. But if you just look at it in terms of an energetic movement, we are all pockets of energy that stay very self-protected within our pocket until we're willing to release some of the ways that we fear or obstruct life. And when we do that, life gets in. This pocket doesn't remain pocketed. It begins to flow out. The energy begins to move and also receives. And that beautiful uh, exchange of, of, uh, of mutuality and that openness, that, that sense of invitation uh, begins to expand more and more as Dharma practice increases. Now, you can get a feeling for that in yourself. It's very important that you don't keep positioning yourself back into that flow and movement of energy. As soon as you do, you're going to make the energy uh, very encrusted and uh, very difficult uh, to move because the energy itself, of course, is, is a verb. It's moving in and out. It's always an exchange. But the sense of I is a noun, and the noun is what protects itself from the verb. So it's just the sense of how open this organism is in any particular moment. And you can see how your mind closes that down. It turns the wheels and suddenly shuts itself off from that openness. And then other times it's opened up and you claim reference to that opening and say, oh, now I feel very generous and now I feel very contracted. But it's really just a, a movement uh, in life meeting itself and feeding itself, you might say, coming back and feeding itself through generosity or uh, even through protectedness is a kind of feeding because at that moment in which we feel protected, uh, we feel that some th a sense of threat, basically. Some sense of reserve in why we can't be open and fluid. Like, uh, now if you're honest, outside our doors here is Tent City. <clears throat> and probably most of us here in the room have two ways of thinking about that. You know, there's a, there's a side of you that feels very communal and very dharmic, and it feels... Uh, of a type of sharing or openness to who is out there in the plight of their life, their, their life that they live and the, and the need to uh, bring the necessary items so that their life can be better. And at the same time, you hear that Tent City is in the area and, you can, and there's that sense of contraction that also gets keyed, likely, and you think, oh God, I have to park in a different area and and it's not pleasant to walk by it because why? Why isn't it, a, I don't know, we have our own reasons for that. It's like the homeless or, I don't know, it reminds us of something. It's interesting what it reminds us of. It often reminds us of, of us of what we're trying to protect and trying to defend ourselves from and that we don't want to be uh, exposed to those who are in deprivation because we don't think we're up to the task of giving sufficiently when we're faced with that kind of deprivation. So it, there's always this feedback going on. And when we are uh, light upon our feet and settled and quiet, we can use that feedback 
and a proper orientation. When we can't, we get closed down, we get clenched fist, and we stay in a kind of contracted state. And so this exposure to life is an ongoing feedback loop. It's what's beautiful about it. It's why it's dharmic, is that it never lets us outside of our own closure, enclosure. It always shows us that. And there is no, and I want to make sure that we all understand that there is no idealization here. You know, we're not Jesus on the mount opening our arms to the masses and saying, everyone come. We're not outside opening our car doors to the tent city and say, pile in. You know, there's a, there's a medium in which we move, in which that contraction is necessary, uh, but a little too automatic. So it's, we close down, but we also open back up. And we we have we don't know how exactly to navigate this life. We'd like to idealize it. Can people hear me? Okay. We'd like to idealize it. I'm sorry, this is all I have. I don't... The, the, would you get me the other microphone? I guess that was better than... So... When we do idealize it, though, we find ourselves forcing ourselves beyond a kind of readiness we have to exchange, to breathe in, to have a relationship. We feel protected. We feel scared. We feel as if life is going to ask something of us that we're not able to give. And we're not being asked to give beyond our readiness. That's what I mean when I say staying within ourselves. We're not being asked to, to live up to some ideal here. And none of us should feel that somehow our generosity is being uh, forsaken uh, through an ideal. We have what we have. We have our own readiness to give and our own sense of self-protection and fear of giving. And those two are in tension with one another. And that tension is really the tension of being a self and individuated and the enclosed way that an individuated noun thinks about oneself in terms of a protective sense of scarcity. You know, how much can I give? It's, it's always quantifiable. It's always a sense of needing. It's always from a sense of of um, personal lacking, really. And there's nothing, this is just to be observed. It's not to get over. It's to be inquired, not to be idealized. It's to, like, what's going on here? What, what is it? Where's the hesitation here? Where's the, where's the quiet? Where's the relaxation within this, this flow, this ebb and flow of energy? And so the worst thing we can do is to try to push ourselves forward when we're not properly understanding why it is that we're in our bunker. We can't push ourselves out of the bunker. We can't force a readiness to give. 
And I think that's very important for us to understand because that's really the truth of Dharma, not just in terms of generosity, but for virtually every attribute. We have to learn our way in. We have to see what it is and why it is that we need the protection we're seeking. Why it is that fear is arising in this moment and what it is that we're frightened about. And so in that way, when we properly understood what it is that we are wanting from our sense of protection, not trying to get over our protection. To get over something doesn't allow us to understand anything about it. It just makes it an obstacle and a delay to something that we think is much better, which was an idealized sense of, of giving. But this sense of space is provisional. That is, we have to see our way through it. We have to understand our way into it. And all around us is this vast openness. And we are simply stated frightened of that. It's too big, too vast. It, we feel consumed by it. And so we stay protected until we can secure a proper posture within it. When we can say, okay, I can open now. You know, What is it that I need to protect myself from? What is it that I need to do? in order to keep myself properly positioned. And there is no better quality to be able to see all of that than generosity. Generosity has a beautiful interplay of feedback. It's just that we feel on one side is the Dharma and the other side is the selfishness that we're trying to get over. And we make this tension, this false tension between the two. Rather than as an exploration, we create a wall in which I have to get over my selfishness and get to generosity. But this is an invitation to really begin to, you don't have, there's no, you don't get to, you don't cultivate generosity here. All we do is see through our selfishness and then there is generosity. Do you see the difference? Generosity waits for us to penetrate or perceive why it is that we are fearful. The absence of fear is generosity. But we make it into a game or pursuit because that's what we do, right? We make it into a, a competition with ourselves. How generous was I yesterday and how more generous can I be today? This is, this is really the basic problem in most people's Dharma practice is that they, th that sense of force keeps you in place in your selfishness trying to be generous. And you'll always have a sense of diminishment from that perspective. You'll never be generous enough. Guaranteed. Right? I mean, so here we are. Right? Our neighbor is ill next door and calls us at odd times during the day to take him or her to the doctor's office and we say in our most generous mood call me anytime <laughs> right I'm available for you because our heart feels it our heart genuinely in that moment it's not pretentious genuinely in that moment we feel we want to help this person we feel the pain now notice how generosity is really associated with suffering in the sense that 
to be generous, you have to feel the pain of the world. You have to, you have to be able to meet the pain of the world. You ha want to have to share. You want to have to, you want to extend out to that pain of the world. Generosity isn't from a just benevolence. Oh, you know, I have so much. It's not. It's like feeling that. It's it's an act of love, really. It's an expression. It's an action of love. Now, there's two things, two points I want to make. So don't let me forget the point I was just trying to make as I've tried to make this other point. <laughs> no, I can't remember either point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, just, I'm having a senior moment. not there. Well, here we go. We'll have to start somewhere here. So once I, uh, I was feeling uh, the sort of the contraction uh, of my own lack of generosity and wanted to see really what was going on. In it. And I started noticing all the ways that I was taking but never giving back. And I remember I was in the hospice program at that time, and uh, they had this, uh, this candy supply uh, that uh, I would come through the door and take a, in this case it was an M&M, but it was, one of the, it was a big, one of these big M&Ms that had a handle that you pulled down and M&M would spit out of its mouth. So everybody was knowing that you were taking it because it <laughs> wasn't a simple practice or procedure. So I, I mean, I would come in and, and the handle would go down. <laughs> and I thought for one time, you know, somebody's filling that thing up. Somebody is adding M&Ms to that. And I have been for months now just taking M&Ms from that. And you begin to get a sense of how life leans in, a, in an improper direction. Do you ever get that sense in yourself? Where you're just leaning too far into life. It's not... It just doesn't feel balanced. It doesn't feel appropriate. So at that point, you know, you bring a big bag of M&Ms and fill the bag up. But it's that sense in ourselves, that, that intuitive sense in ourselves. This isn't a mind sense. This is a heartfelt sense of where we are leaning too much into life. And, too, and it's just not balanced, just not holding itself. And then we resupply it. We resupply it because our heart needs that. It needs to regain that threshold into itself. And this sense of generosity, this sense of, of, of spaciousness, really, because it has to do with space. It has to do with how much maneuverability we have. How much abundance do we see in life? How much play is there in life? How much availability is there in the space I'm in? Am I contained and, 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 and uh, uh, sort of contracted in myself? Or is there room, maneuverability here to reach out, to connect, to see beyond my necessary uh, needs? And so 
This sense of resentment that we have, going back to the neighbor, we have offered our services to this neighbor in an explosion of a generous heart. We have offered our services. We genuinely, in that moment, want to serve them in ways that are most helpful. But then they start using us. They start calling us, right? First, it's during the day. We can handle that, and there's a little rub because anytime anyone calls us on the phone, it deprives us of what we wanted to do or what we were doing. And so there's a readjustment that's going on as the phone rings, and we are then called to lend our services. And so this readjustment begins to take its toll when it's not perceived. That part of ourselves that feels contracted, that part of ourselves that feels uh, selfish, that wants to just keep doing what we wanted to do, is being invited, that feedback is being shown to us through the telephone call, in which we are asked to live up to our vow of service. And this is the constant, this is the constant feedback loop that we all get. Now, the Dharma student thinks that the contracted part is the part that is the worldly part, the part that I'm trying to get over, I'm trying to get through, I'm trying to diminish that. And I really want a heart that can just relate totally to whatever the service needs are and whatever this particular person is wanting from me. Well, nonsense. Nonsense. If you aren't owning and, and if you're not being responsible to the contracted part, you're never going to allow yourself to understand yourself in a new openness. And now this person calls you at 2 o'clock at night, and you're asleep, and you have an early morning appointment, and on and on. Now what are you going to do? Because now it's boiling up. Now the tension is getting to the point where you snap at her or him on the phone when that call does come in, or you refuse to answer it, acting as if you're not at home, or some other form of what? Of deceit. So we've closed back down. Now a way to be able to handle that is to look at both sides of that issue. Look at the side that's contracted, staying within ourselves the whole time, not denying ourselves in some kind of idealized Dharma way, but staying, see, okay, well, there's a contracted part of me. Doesn't want to go. And then there's a part of me that stated to her very clearly that I would go. And I feel both of those parts. And at one point I may say to that person, I know I promised you, is there someone else you can get to take you since this is a really inconvenient time for me? And she says, well, no, I really counted on you. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do what I can. And you see, but there's this way that we can use both parts of ourselves to navigate into a new ground of openness, into a new what? Self-acceptance, into a new area in which we are not denying any aspect of ourselves, but we're open and willing to look at all aspects. And that's generosity. When you deny a certain contention within you, a certain tension within you, you're not being self-generous. If you think you can get to generosity by not being self-generous, well, you have to think again. The willingness to open up to all the different levels of tension within us 
understanding that. You see, it's not that those things stay in place. We're not nouns here. These are not barricades that will remain in place for time immemorial. When we start examining them and our reasons that we feel the need to have that protection, they start coming down. They start dissolving in front of us. You start looking at what you're afraid of. Oh, I'm, gonna get, I'm not going to get enough sleep for, for the meeting tomorrow. And that's the fear I have of getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and responding to this call. And yet, you do it, and you find, yes, the meeting, you're a little tired. But it's not a ruinous morning. And having lived through that, you begin to see that the objections the mind creates are always in terms of tragedy. I can't do this because something terrible will happen. And as we start perceiving through that tragedy, which is the statement of fear, fear is always tragic. If you keep doing what you're about to do, tragedy will befall. That's what the voice of fear is. And as you travel that road again and again and perforate that veil of fears, that conversation of fear, you begin to see that that which holds us in place is malleable. It's not absolute. And sometimes I do think I'm tired. I'm so tired. I've done this four nights in a row. I really do need a good night's sleep. And I've all called John two doors down. He says he'll, it's fine for him, you to call him. You see, this is what it means by staying in ourselves. Staying in a place where we know what's going on inside of us. We're not staying in a locked position within ourselves. We're questioning, looking, exploring the different avenues, the different possibilities that are there and looking at what it is that obscures new, a new arena of openness, a new, a new uh, availability of openness for ourselves. Now I want to talk, now I found the second thread that I was going to go to, and that is about action in terms, many of us, <clears throat> it's a, a slight transgression here. Many of us think of ourselves as meditation students. But I would suggest that what we are really becoming are Dharma students. And there's a difference. A meditation student has a, a good meditation practice, has a very strong samadhi and stability of mind, penetrates whatever it is that they are seeing, leads to a lot of insight and understanding of what they are seeing, but there is often very little application of that insight into their life. A Dharma student has a meditation practice, but is much more uh, serious about the actual application of the meditation into their daily life. This is a Dharma activity. And that's why the Buddha, when he was speaking about the Eightfold Path, did not leave out any aspect of our life uh, as undharmic. He didn't raise the, the heights of meditation as to being the governing factor of all of this. He put, actually, meditation near the bottom of the Eightfold Path. Because what was as important it seemed to me, and what he was stating, is the actions that we create, the 
the willfulness that we are uh, uh, of the actual volitional willfulness that we take upon what we do see, upon the insights we do have. And as I mentioned, that's the hardest part. And the reason I'm, re I'm emphasizing this point is because you can have extremely good insight. You can see your selfishness. You can develop all kinds of resolve and intention to step out of your selfishness. But then when the woman calls at 2 AM, you're right back in your selfishness. And we're held within the residual quality of a long established pattern and conditioning within us. And that pattern and conditioning has so much more conditioning than our feeble inclination to be generous that the generosity doesn't stand a chance, really, when the phone call comes. Now, as we start moving this thing very slowly and maturely, staying within ourselves in little areas that we can uh, develop some actual action, like simple little things like bringing toilet paper to the people who are in need of it in the homeless shelter, or uh, we're out in the street and somebody wants to get in front of us and we allow that to happen, or just small little ways that we give ourselves over to the activity at hand and let the person take precedent over our particular wishes. We see that this, this has its own momentum in terms of the bigger qualities of generosity. We don't stay stuck. We don't, it's not insurmountable. So now the insights start working and piercing and perforating the actions themselves. And the actions start moving in conjunction with the insight instead of staying in, in an exclusive environment of retreating where the insights are rich but my life is, is generosity poor. We, we have to bring this thing into action. And I don't think that's as well understood by the meditation student as the Dharma student. We are Dharma students. We are teaching to be an understanding how to be Dharma students here. And that's a far richer and more complete. The breadth of that is far more embracing than simply having a very fine meditation practice at home. And that's around us all the time. We're always giving or retreating, establishing and extending in abundance or contracting in scarcity. All the time we are doing that. Somebody comes up to us who we don't particularly like and we freeze and we come, come back down because we don't have the capacity we haven't developed the action to be able to hold that sense of unpleasantness with that person and give them what they truly need, which is our attention through that unpleasantness. We react to the unpleasantness and stay within the confines and conditioning of that. So this is, this is creating a greater arena for us to live in. And that has its effect upon our ability to be generous. And it has to start, again, we're never giving ourselves away on this. We're not suggesting that there isn't a limitation, that there isn't a no to generosity. There is a no to generosity. There's a yes to generosity, and there will always be a no to generosity. There'll be a limitation in which we cannot give any more. 
because a generous heart also concedes its own needs as well as what the needs are that it perceives externally. And so it works in conjunction, not one is more important than the other. It works in conjunction to filling its own needs as well as reaching it across to those that are in need external. And so I think it's also important to understand what generosity means because usually we confine it to, you know, writing a check for the nonprofit organization or giving money in the Donna basket or something. But <clears throat> let's look at it in terms of creative generosity. What's creative generosity? Creative generosity is, is out beyond the material benefits of giving away quantity of things. What about attention? What about the willingness to pay attention to someone? Right? Is there anything more valuable than your attention? You see, it implies time, doesn't it? If you're going to give somebody your attention, you also have to meet them and share time and space with them. But then what's up against that, the tension of that, is our busyness. This, this happened not too long ago, I'm ashamed to say. I was on my bike heading home. I had appointments all morning long. And the light, which was a long light, just was about to turn. And a woman came up to me and said, can you tell me where? And I said, you know, I'm trying to get home quick, and I have to get across the street. No, I didn't say it, but in my, I have no time to do this. That's what, right? As soon as I got across the street, I wanted to come back. <laughs> I thought, oh, how can I, you know, what's good? Okay, so that's the wrong reaction, right? That does not, that's not helpful. That ties you in a box. That's self-abuse, right? Okay, so what's going on there? Why is my time so much more important? Why can't I miss a light, right? Why can't I just share what she wanted, which is probably something I didn't know anyway, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Why couldn't I just spend the time and just, you see? Now, in retrospect, what I want to do is I want to bring up the pain I was in the moment she asked me, because there, within that pain, within that contraction, there's something that I felt was so needed, so necessary for me to do, that I was willing to bypass all people who were in need external to me. So I need to know that. So when I re brought up, when I just reimagined that situation, you began to feel the sense of begrudgment or some, you know, of being, uh, not having your own life, like somebody telling me, you know, just get out of my, I just want to, it was that young childhood uh, conditioning that I have lived with for so long where I was told what to do and all that sort of thing. Well, that, that's what was contracting me. But when you enter into that contraction and you experience it, Suddenly, new space opens. You're being generous to it. Now, new understanding comes from that. And 
has been exemplified in a number of ways that I've done this, it has less of a, of a tendency to pull you into its uh, sphere of influence the next time it arises. So this sense of giving our attention to someone, the creative expressions of generosity, creative generosity, time, patience. You see, patience is generous, isn't it? Patience is settled. Patience is not annoyed. And the gift that you're giving when you're giving your attention is, your val is validation. Instead of money, right? you're giving validation. When, somebody, when we pay attention to someone, we are validating them. And most of us walk around feeling invalidated. And so for us to be able to pay attention to someone and steady our attention and not think about the next thing we are going to do allows them to heal to their inward wounds. In simple ways, we can turn this around culturally. A small number of us. By just pushing generosity beyond some of the more obvious forms that we know it, like money, it's not all about money. It's not all about possessions. It's about human worth, really. It's about meeting. We don't have time to meet. And you can see that as interconnection grows in us, as we feel more connected to ourselves, which is usually this joining part of us, when we're not connected to our emotions, our emotions drive us away from ourselves. We follow the emotion away from the sense of connection, and it just separates us more. But when we're connected to the emotion we're having, it no longer separates us from the situation we're having it in. And we can hold the emotion and connect within that situation. Otherwise, the emotion drives us from the situation. And so this sense of connection begins internally with us, within us. And then as we begin to experience the capacity to hold with generosity our own inward life, we find we have more ability to not follow those moods or dispositions and turn our back to life, but now we're inclusive. And instead of being annoyed and letting that annoyance turn our back on the situation, we can hold the annoyance and reconnect within that annoyance by holding, by a greater part of us that comes out and around that annoyance. Yes, we still feel the annoyance. That's the feedback. This is always about feedback. No matter what we do, there will always be feedback as to where we are in need of more understanding. But I love that. If, it would, if life didn't give us that, it, didn't, it wouldn't give us anything of worth. It gives us always the information we need to continue to grow. If we're willing to listen sufficiently to what the feedback is and be willing to explore and understand our way into that reaction. 
So this beautiful ebbing and flowing of life is always towards greater inclusivity. But never in ways that take us out of ourselves. That's the paradox. We stay within ourselves and staying within ourselves, staying within our own understanding, within what we know about life, we then begin to journey ourselves out of the form that we have taken. There's something beautiful in being able to work life in that direction. That's the Dharma student. That's the student who's willing to use their feedback and move into action, both the action of investigation and understanding within themselves, but then also not be limited and constricted by the actions we've always taken. And you begin to get a sense, I think all of us have felt this, what it really feels like when we move from that sense of, of scarcity into abundance. Why is it that there is so much joy associated with giving? Because in the moment we are willing to give, we have moved out of our self-protection into abundance. That's what it feels like. That's the joy of space. That's the joy of openness. As we slough off our shackles, that's what it looks like. That's what life looks like when it's operated in accordance to the truth of it. And that sense of joy is a kind of a marker for ourselves. And it's the joy of really non-separation. It's the joy of being connected. It's the joy of having space to do things, but also the joy of including ourselves within that space. We don't escape the form of ourselves. That's not what meditation or dharma is about. It's not about never having any reference for ourselves. You're always going to have a self-reference. But the self-reference doesn't keep you within its closed circle. You can move outside of it. You consider it, but you also move outside of it. It doesn't just consider itself. It also considers the greater moment at hand. It's ease, you see? You can feel the ease of it. You can feel the simplicity of it. You can feel the quiet of it. Would you sit for a minute or two? So I'd like to suggest that each of us sit generously. Right? Sit internally. Generous. What does it mean to sit with generosity? 
You see, when, you re when we understand what is required in order to grow, then being generous uh, is established in that environment so that we can grow. And a generous environment for growth is one in which you're just seeing. Not forcing yourself to see something or forcing yourself to be better. Anytime you come in and try to nudge yourself beyond where you are, that's not being generous. And that is not the environment in which you will grow. So when you're sitting in meditation, you are establishing the perfect environment for growth to occur by simply acknowledging what is being seen, not making any demands upon what is being seen, but simply seeing. But you have to move that into action. That's great. That makes you a very fine meditator. But you could still be a surly neighbor. How does that inform you as to how to connect with people? When they too operate in exactly in accordance with those same laws. They can't be told what to do. And expect to, be, to grow from that coercion. They have to see for themselves why it is that the position they're in hurts them. And then they're willing to grow and move out of it. So to move that into action. And how does that look when we move the generosity of our meditation into the action of interconnectedness, of interrelationship? Is it the same attention you're giving yourself in this moment is now being offered to your neighbor? Or to whomever? Okay, well, good. So we have a, little, have a little time for any questions you might have or comments? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think poetry often sort of sums up the talk. And some, I mean, it's much more concise. I could just read the poem and shut up. And basically, be, I'd be happy and you'd be happy. <laughs> it's much more concise. And, but that, but the sense of uh, appropriateness. The first thing. When you start loosening your guard, which all of you have, by the way, 
None of you are the same people you were when you started, no matter how long you've been doing this. You're not the same person. And the first thing you start noticing is a greater sense to appreciate. Right? You said, maybe visually, or maybe things in yourself that you have bypassed, or maybe in another person, your partner, for instance. Well, I never realized that you were <laughs> been with you for 30 years. And but just the, uh, the greater ability. Now, now life is getting through. Now it's porous, you see. Now it's a sieve. Things are, things are flowing or moving. That's what you want. You want things moving. You want things moving in. And feedback is a sure indication that things are moving in. You want it to come in. You're getting feedback. We don't necessarily like the feedback. We're often very protective of feedback very defended against feedback, so we, keep, we close the door. We, we shut off the, 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 uh, the line. We shut the line down. Because feedback, for some of us, is our worst enemy because it tells us, we're afraid that it will tell us our worst fears about ourselves. So to keep that from happening, we'll go in isolated and protected, but then it's shut off. The valves are closed, and you, there's there's nothing worse than to see a human being with closed valves, and you all know them, don't you? They're all around us. So you open them back up again, and then you deal with the issues that the feedback is pointing towards. They're just issues of pain. They're not issues of of They're not issues of truth. They're not things that someone's pointing out about us that are everlastingly true about us. They're just points in which we have closed down or have an assumption about. As soon as we bring those to the light of our awareness, it all starts flowing again. And as long as we're looking, it's flowing. As soon as we are refusing to look, it closes down. The valves are off. So you begin to get this sense that it doesn't always feel good to have the valves on. Feedback doesn't always feel good. In fact, it doesn't feel very good at all. But it gets much more buoyant. It gets much lighter. And if it begins to, and, and we also have handled it a thousand times, so it all has its own lightness just over repetition. And you get hungry for it at some point. You want the valves as open as you can make them. And so you want the feedback. And so you actually go looking for it, believe it or not. And then at that point, the, you know, it's irreversible. It's irreversible. So one of the things we do is just where is we shutting down? You know, where is the feedback too much for us? What are we afraid of? I love questions. Questions take us right to the point of the problem and open that problem to an inquisition. What's going on here? Why, why did I just shut down there? What, what is it? See, then you're open to understanding, which is open to growth, and then we're open to having the valves come back on. If you say, I don't care, that, that woman was asking me about directions, and I have no time for that. Couldn't she see that I, 
Okay, now the valves are closed. That's it. Right? <laughs> Nothing's happening then. And I know that and you know that. So how do we keep this thing moving? The Buddha said, someone who does not listen to their own sense of inward feedback is like a cook that cooks anything regardless of whether it's healthy or even poisonous. They aren't interested in who they're cooking for or what the person needs. They're just interested in cooking what they want. So you don't eat wheat? Too bad. Here's some bread. That's what I made today. That's all you're eating. <laughs> I don't know what all that <laughs> you get in senior moments you get periods of lost memory and you get that it just <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> anyone else have a comment or question So the, the question is about, it's a tendency that all of us will go through where uh, there's a pull towards solitude, towards being quiet, just not wanting to engage. And yet at the same time, people remember you as an engaging person and they come up and chit chat and you just don't have any energy for it. And, and, uh, or it could be other ways, you know, that there's just this natural pullback. Um, okay, so a couple of things. One is, <clears throat> You know, you can, be, you can get soured on the pettiness of speech and have a kind of an internal judgment about people and how petty the speech is and how it's just chit-chat and I don't want to be involved in chit-chat. If that's going on and you're pulling back from that, then that's, that's the lack of generosity. Okay. However, when there's a natural or, organic feeling of just wanting to be quiet, but not an aversion to being able to, uh, to speak if someone came up to me, uh, or there might be an aversion to it, but the willingness to accommodate that interaction uh, and not just stay in an isolated position, then you're, 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 you're breathing uh, both for yourself, you're breathing generosity in yourself in the sense that you're looking for more opportunities to be quiet and uh, in solitude, and at the same time, you're not devoiding that generosity or separating that generosity from the interactive process as well. So you get a sense in yourself, the motivation, what is motivating this particular pullback, this aversion, you see? That sense, what is it? Is, it, is this aversion? I don't want to talk anymore. I'm just going to be quiet, you know? Is it, because why, what is that about? Because you can be quiet while you're conversing at some point. You can stay in quietude. It's if you think that you are, what people want from you is a kind of uh, 
energetic quality that they may never get again, right? Sort of a, an acting out quality that was fine when you were egoically on top of yourself, but that recedes very quickly. Now what they're going to get is you interacting from quiet. That's going to be a very different kind of you. And some of your friends will not show up in the same way as they used to, but that will also bring other friends to your side, new friends. And so you can't just give people what they have always thought of what, of what they wanted from you, or what they expected from you. You're going to be changing inside. But you can look at the motivation of what you are doing and how you're receiving them and making sure that that's clean. It's not an easy, it's, every one of us will go through that. It's not an easy transition to make as we get pulled to, to a greater sense of simplicity in ourselves, greater sense of quiet. Okay, thank you all very much. Next week we'll have a discussion on this topic. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.